Thanks for joining us this week on The Collector Show. I am Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio. This week on the program, we're going to be talking with the label man. This is an individual who really helped invent the hobby of collecting all types of labels, whether labels from salmon cans, fruit crates, any type of printing that goes into the label-making business, this is the man you want to hear from. And we're not going to talk about anything much other than fruit crate label collecting. You're going to learn a lot about art. You're going to learn a lot about printing. You're going to learn a lot about our agrarian heritage and the importance of transportation in getting fresh produce, even today, all coming up in the interview segment of The Collector Show. But first, we'll do the news. Reality TV programming for collectors should be all about the stuff. Collecting industry veteran expert and appraiser Gary Summers was asked by a major cable network last year what was missing in reality programming. And he pointed out that on any Monday evening, there were 8 million people watching Antiques Roadshow, which is always fun to watch, and an additional 4 million people watching Pawn Stars, which is also a terrific show. And uh, he commented that the audience really wanted more than just a single night of collecting programming, but wanted six nights. So he got what he wanted, and now there are more than a dozen programs aimed at people with collections. Antiques Roadshow has been on television in the U.S. for 15 years. But there is more to the stuff than an appraisal, as viewers want to be educated and entertained. Hopefully listening to this program, you get both. Reality Rocks Expo is fulfilling the audience demand aggregate reality TV talent from across all genres for a fan fest happening April the 9th and 10th at the Los Angeles Convention Center. That's April the 9th and 10th, 2011 at the L.A. Convention Center, and it is billed as the Comic-Con of reality TV. There will be everything a fan or a TV wannabe could ever want, and their awareness of the growing audience demand for collectors' programming encouraged the producers to invite Gary, the man mentioned earlier in the story, to help moderate a celebrity panel each day of the event. Titled It's All About the Stuff, the panels will be daily from 11 until noon, and we'll discuss antiques, collectibles, and second-hand businesses represented by programs such as the aforementioned Antiques Roadshow, Hollywood Treasures, Meteorite Men, Storage Wars, American Pickers, Hoarders, Oddities, Auction Kings, and Pawn Stars, along with taking questions. Okay, so in the past we've had people who collect meteorites on the program. American Pickers is is pretty entertaining, Um it's a couple of guys who go out and um, search through barns and warehouses for different kinds of collectible collectibles. Hoarders, I don't think so. Um, Hoarders has got nothing to do with collecting um, from what I've seen of it. Hoarders has to do with people who have emotional problems, so I'm not sure why they threw that in. Um, but anyway, at the uh, show in April, April the 9th and 10th at the L.A. Convention Center, Gary is going to be joined by another Gary, Pia Tony, who has also appeared for 14 seasons as an appraiser on Antiques Roadshow, Dan and Laura Dotson, who are the owners of American Auctioneers and the stars of Storage Wars on A&E, Joe Mandalina, <clears throat> excuse me, who's the owner of Profiles in History and star of Hollywood Treasures on Sci-Fi, and Jeff Notkin, owner of Aerolite Meteorites and the co-host of Meteorite Men on Discovery. 
So if you uh, live in the Los Angeles area or are going to be visiting there or would like to just go out there to go to this event, you can sign up at the, uh, oh, where's the darn, uh, where's their darn address? Oh well, look for uh, Reality Rocks on the on Google. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And uh, I apologize for not uh, for not having that here in front of me. It was there when I wrote it. Not sure where it went. Here's a a piece of news about a contest. Haggerty is the world's leading provider of collector car insurance, and they have announced as of March the 14th the launch of the first ever youth reporter contest as part of its Operation Ignite. Youth advocacy programs. Enthusiasts about cars who are ages 8 to 17 are invited to showcase their star reporting skills for the chance to travel to up to four major automotive events over the summer break as Haggerty's official youth reporter for 2011. The youth reporter contest expands our youth-focused programs to reach a new group of young enthusiasts who are passionate about sharing their interest and knowledge of collector cars, said McKeel Haggerty, CEO of Haggerty Insurance Company, and the Haggerty Insurance Company, incidentally, writes a lot of insurance for uh, car collecting, and we talked a little bit about that last week. We hope that we find the new star of a young generation of collectors who will inspire other youth to get involved in the hobby. Not sure how many kids uh, 8 to 17 are in the market for collectible cars, and most of them can't even drive them, but what do I know? Each contest participant is required to upload a three to five minute video that showcases their reporting skills on a collector car event or topic to the contest website, which, thank God I do have that, www.haggerty.com slash Operation Ignite. The deadline is May the 1st, and the public are invited to view each video online where their vote will determine the final winner from the top ten selections. So I imagine you all will want to go and look at that, and there will be plenty of parents out clicking again and again on their kids' entry. Finally, last news item before we get to the interview segment, a free Dick Walker Collector's Magazine with this week's Angling Times. The Angling Times is a fishing magazine that is published in the United Kingdom, or England, as it's sometimes referred to, and they have been doing some commemorative work Free with this week's Angling Times, the final part of our Legend series, a special collector's tribute to the greatest names in angling. This week celebrates Dick Walker, the godfather of modern angling. Dick inspired a generation to pick up a rod with his brilliant articles and books. From Clarissa to the creation of the Arlesey Bomb, those are kinds of, uh, of uh, bait, lures, by the way. Celebrate Dick's life with this special free Legends magazine dedicated to his angling career. When Angling Times was launched on July the 10th, 1953, Dick was signed up to write a weekly column. It was a match made in heaven, one that lasted for 30 years, making Dick the best-known name in angling and helping make Angling Times the world's best-selling angling newspaper. This special tribute is a snapshot of an angling icon, Dick was a colossus who inspired tens of thousands of anglers for more than 30 years. Take a trip back in time and enjoy the exploits of the maestro, the godfather of modern angling. You can Google that for the March 15th issue of Angling Times, published in the UK. I didn't even know they fished in the UK. Okay, stay tuned for more of the Collector Show 
labels, fruit crate labels, coming up next here on Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. Well, during the interview segment of this week's program, we are very pleased to be joined by Dwayne Rogers. Dwayne is known for his hobby of collecting all types of labels and is known as the Label Man. He also owns a very popular website, thelabelman.com. And he's an expert on collecting of all things different types of labels. And hello, Dwayne. Welcome to the Collector's Show. Hi, Harold. How are you doing today? Very, very well. Good. Okay. Now, um, you talked with us once before about collecting salmon can labels and how you got into that. Um, so, but just for the benefit of people who've joined our audience since then, can you? Uh, Give us a little bit of background on how you came to be interested in collecting different kinds of labels. Yes, I, when I was younger, I, um, I worked for the USDA as an ag inspector. And so it was in California, and what we do is I'd be traveling up and down the state working at different um, packing plants, just quality control. And I ran into a, this is back like in 1978, and I ran into a guy who collected labels. And he was fanatical about it, and I started seeing labels from my hometown that he had, and and back then, people just kind of traded them back and forth, and packing plants had piles of them. And, and once you met somebody, um, you started doing it. There's other collectors, too. So what would happen is as I traveled up and down you know, following different crops every year, I, I started meeting different collectors, and we started trading back and forth, and, um, and it just progressed from there. So you'll forgive the pun if I say that your uh, hobby grew organically. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> you could say that. Um. Now, I'm interested um, specifically in fruit crate labels. Now, what, first of all, what is a fruit crate, and uh, how and why are they, are they labeled? Well, basically, it's, um, it's like a packaging requirement. You know, back, they always just used to use wood boxes to package stuff, and you'd always have to have um, some kind of identity on the box. And basically, this is ephemera. It was made to be pasted on a box, and then that would prove, you know, give it the identity, and as the box shipped across the country, you know, you'd know where it came from, who packed it, who's responsible for it. And, like, if I shipped a box of oranges from California to Michigan, you know, when it got to Michigan, if they were spoiled and there was no label on it, you'd be a lot more harder recourse on it. Because a lot of times, you know, these things would change hands. A, a load of produce might change hands for different brokers. And so basically it was a form of identity. Okay, so... Um but what I'm thinking of a, of a fruit crate label, and um, I know that when I was growing up in Texas, I worked at a grocery store, and they would have lettuce or onions or things like that that would come in. Mm -hmm. um, my assumption then was that um, all of the labels were the same. It just labeled lettuce from Rio Grande Vegetable Company in Brownsville, Texas. Yeah. Isn't that the case with uh, all fruit crates? They're all the same? 
No, what it is is um, at some point it became, I don't know if it, it was an ego or a competition, but artwork started getting more involved in it, and it became um, very artistically desirable. And part of it was, um, I guess, in some of the places you'd have, um, and this probably this goes back to like the 1880s, 18, oh, 1890s, and there's when it first started doing, and probably around 1900, 1910, it really started picking up. The artwork was just incredible. And, um, and I think back then they did everything much more elaborate than they do nowadays, more, more attention to detail. I think probably when we were talking about the, like, like the 1950s, by that time it was um, actually it was more what they call a marketing phase. You might see more, more of the identity and things like that, but you wouldn't have the nice artwork that you, you'd find back like in the 1920s, 30s, in that period of time. And I want to get to the artwork, but if you're just joining us, it's The Collector Show with Harold Nickel, and this week we're talking with Dwayne Rogers, the label man, and we're talking specifically about collecting fruit crate labels. So we talked for a minute about the artwork, and I know that when we talk about art and printing from the 1890s, even the early 20th century, the process for that was far more labor-intensive than, than what it is today. Is part of that process what makes these more or less collectible? I think that's a big part of it because um, it is. They're, they're like early prints. Any anytime you get color print from like 1920 or earlier, it's always beautiful. Yeah, the colors are more subdued. And, and somebody with a paintbrush had to sit down and and paint these portraits. If is that right? Yeah, and I think. Part of it, you know, we always have this indication, like nowadays you can go get something printed at a Kinko's. And, but back then, if you wanted color print in 1900, you had to have a, it was a big process, like we were saying, I mean, the stones or even the printing presses and things. So there was big operations. And a lot of these lithograph companies that printed the labels, they were, um, they were these big warehouses that have massive, you know, banks of artists. They had, um, they printed other material too. And it was, um, they were big manufacturing companies. Yeah, and, and people don't, I think, remember um, th in advertising, there was a trade known as a sign painter where somebody would actually go out with a, a brush in their paints and paint signs for stores or for various companies in the forms of advertising. And it sounds to me like this is very similar to that kind of an operation. I think to some extent, um, I think what we had in, there were different phases. Like, let's say... Um, well, we can go down to Texas. I'm not quite as familiar with, with the areas, but let's say um, let's say the printing company was in Houston. But and actually, well, actually, most of our printing companies, San Francisco was um, Baltimore. Um, a lot of more immigrants. There was Schmidt was one of the biggest ones. Trong was another big one, and they were German immigrants, and they were very good with printing and art. And um, what happened is, so you had this San Francisco. You had this big printing company. Schmidt was in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, and if you had a um, orchard that was like up in the foothills or something, they'd have like a salesman come out, and he would pretty much sketch out or get an idea from you of what you want on your label. And then he'd take that back, and then they had this bank of artists, and the artists would draw it up. And, um, and sometimes you'd have like artists that would make you just do the fruit vignettes or do the, the image, and then you might have someone who was in charge of just doing fonts. Um, fonts are like a really big part of labels. Um, I never understood it at first, but graphic designers, um, they like labels a lot. And oh, what yeah. they would do is they come after, after the fonts. When the fonts are one of the main things they really enjoy. Well, in, in terms of printing, and I know this uh, from my advertising background, um, and I fight with art directors all the time about font choices. Um, 
because art directors are artists and um, the choice of the font is really something that could make a label or an advertisement or a letter or even an email more or less readable because the the serif fonts what I always learned um, coming up in the ad writing trade was that serif fonts were far more readable um, friendly to your eye than were the sans serif fonts so I can uh, I can understand that and even now the uh, in a world of computer generated communications and signs and labels every art director I know is in love with the Arial sans serif font which um, and reversed which might as well be written in invisible ink <laughs> because it's just unreadable so um, but it sounds like the experience of the people who designed these labels were were very similar yeah I, that's interesting I didn't um yeah I mean, like I said before it was all kind of new to me I actually had a graphic designer not too long ago and she made the comment again um it was the font that really intrigued her yeah yeah it, it can uh, make or break any kind of of labeling so in the early part of the 20th century they would sketch these out with a pencil and the farmer or the orchard owner would approve yeah. the label yeah. and then they'd go on and do uh, and I think there were glass all kinds of plating and photography went into those label creations is that not right I think they really I think the phototype came around I think they, they did have experiment with phototype um, printing back like 1900 but it didn't turn out really well and, and I don't think it was until the 1930s they did the um, the phototype but I think what they would use is um, I'm not quite as up on that but you know they went from their limestones I think most of these were probably printed on copper plates or zinc plates and then you'd have your you know your, all your color separation actually you'd have your you, the guy would sketch it up and then you'd have your artist um, put it together and then after it was all put together you'd have um, the printers would like take it apart Right. They'd have to separate the colors for the printing process, and then, then they'd come through and they'd print out. They print them out in these big sheets, and um, so every so often you're running across a sheet, and a sheet could be um, anywhere from up to maybe four or five feet square or something, and it was the printing press would print a full sheet. And what they would do is they would stick just different stuff on there to make it fit so they, you know, they, they could maximize the space. And so you get these big sheets and have like different types of labels on it and stuff. And they print these, you know, a few thousand sheets. And then they had the area where they cut. They'd cut these out, and then they'd bundle them up, um, a thousand labels per bundle, and then they'd ship them out. So for the cutting part of the printing process, you described the four-color printing process and how they were they came to be. Then they were, I guess, die-cut and glued onto the fruit crate. How did any of these labels survive the rigors of shipping, handling, thrown around, thrown away? <laughs> how how are there any of these left any place? Actually, the, the part is that people don't really want the ones that were used on boxes. Ah. Um, what happens is um, you make like an orange company. Um, they get quite large. You could, you've probably seen some of the Texas um, big citrus plants. Oh yeah. So you'd have, um, you know, you pack two or three hundred boxes, two or three hundred thousand boxes of, of oranges. And the thing about, and we, we, when you order labels, you have to order labels ahead of time, and then you have to set up their printer. I mean, they can't just do it overnight for you. Because they have, like, a queue when they set up their, their um, facility for these, this run. And then what happens is, um, you know, they print a bunch and they send it to you. So if you run out of labels in the middle of the season, you virtually can't ship your produce. That's right. So what happens is you always have leftover labels. 
And um, it depends on how people clean. Like if the plant was never destroyed or burned down, if it always stayed there, if it, even if it was abandoned sometimes, there'd always be an area where they had all these labels sitting in there. And back in the 1960s, people started kind of accumulating these, you know, they go into plants and they get the stuff. And it's very rare to find it now at a plant, but, um, but basically it's just all the stuff that was left over in um, warehouse-type finds. That's amazing that, but I guess it also um, gets to the other kinds of rare finds that we talk about on the program where somebody will stumble across a rare find. Do you yourself go out uh, rummaging through um, warehouses and docks and wharfs? Is that... <laughs> When I was a hag inspector, <laughs> I did a lot. Oh, yeah, well, like, yeah, every day, I guess. <laughs> like 30 years ago. But um, but nowadays, I did I do go, like, if I'm in an area and there's produce companies, I'll, I'll go up there and I'll, I'll knock on doors. But they've been bugged so much that, um, in some respects, I think they tell you they don't have anything because they don't want to be bothered anymore. But I think there still is a lot of the stuff out there. But people are aware that there's some value, and, and they've got a kind of, like, um, you know, away from the rats and things like that. They've got it cleaned up somewhere. Now, well, if I were to call, I don't know, Del Monte today and say, gee, I'd like to buy some some uh, sheets of of uh, labels from you, or if I called one of the big produce companies, would I be able to, or would they just, like what you said, just tell me to beat it and we don't have it? Yeah, any. I don't think they really would, would want to be bothered with it. That's incredible. It, it just seems like um, a chance for them to make... It, it just sounds like another revenue stream to me. You know, we'll print up 100,000 labels for our fruit boxes and then another 10 for people who collect them. <laughs> it's kind of like, actually, well, nowadays they don't print, they don't print them up nowadays, so it's, it's completely different. But, you know, the funny thing about these is um, you can't really copy the designs. Um, there's a lot of people, there are people who um, do want labels. It's not very common, but they do, do want a label for their... Um, Maybe for advertising, or maybe they have a display, and they, they want someone to create a label for them, and, and usually it's done on a computer and things. And you just don't get you don't get that look. Yeah, there's something to be said for uh, the conveniences of programs like uh, Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop. They make art accessible to people who can't draw, but mm -hmm. then there's something to be said, I think, for the for the art and decorating value. Let's talk for a minute about that because. When I was reading your, your website, um, thelabelman.com, there were sections on there about decorating. Tell us about yeah. that. Um, actually, what happens is most of my clients are, are decorators. There's, there's collectors, but, you know, it's really um, a small amount. I think there's like maybe five or ten collectors in Texas who are avid collectors. You know, another four or five or ten in Arizona, and quite a few in California and Florida. In Washington, but um, for the most part, it's decorators, and and they like um, they're like mini mini collectors too. Sometimes they just they have a small collection of, you know, maybe twenty five or fifty labels, and 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 then sometimes they just buy enough just to cover a wall to to decorate. And um, and people collect them. They like to decorate with like local type labels. They like good graphics. Some people like birds. Um, there was actually a a museum up in. Um, upstate New York somewhere that bought a bunch of bird labels from me, and they wanted to do like a display of bird, bird labels. No kidding. And things. That was, it was nice. And um, I get a lot of, um, like, you have, like, historical-type homes, and um, what they'll do is they'll contact me, and they want labels from a certain period. 
Um, I had a, I had the, you've, you've heard the X-Men? Oh, sure. Well, I had the X-Men. Um, I guess they filmed them, them in London, and they bought a bunch of can labels from me about, uh, well, last year. And I, they were doing, um, what do they call that, the prelude to the X-Men? I guess they're filming it right now, and what it is, it's a, um, you know, they're how the X-Men developed, and it, and it goes back in, like, the 1940s, the storyline does. And what they wanted, they had a kitchen, and they wanted some labels for this kitchen. Oh, Okay. And things like that. So you get a lot of um, people looking for period type stuff too. Oh, that's that's neat. And um, the other thing that really interested me, you know, from back when we first talked, I guess uh, a year and a half, two years ago, was that you have taken your hobby, which we described how you got involved in this earlier because of your work with the uh, ag department. But this is your job now. You've been able to take your hobby and turn it into a job. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. It's, <laughs> I have a hard time believing it sometimes. But, um, yeah, it's been about almost 12 years now that I've done it. And, um, yeah, we, we've paid all our bills off. Things, you know, we're not getting, we're not really wealthy. I'm not buying new vehicles and taking elaborate trips. But um, it covers everything. But I think so many people, whether it's um, their collection or golf or pick a hobby, um, being on the radio, would love to be able to, to do that. Did you start your uh, business while you still had your regular day job, or did you just one day decide, nope, I'm, I'm going all out into the, into the label collecting and uh, sale and trade business? Actually, um, I used to do you know, the, the street shows they have. California has a lot of like, street shows and right. antique shows. And so I used to do a lot of those. One year, almost every weekend, we were somewhere. Um, and usually, you know, it's a drive and a lot of work, and it was a lot of fun, but it really wasn't very profitable, and I used to do that in work, and um, and then eBay, came. eBay really was the catalyst. Right. Um, eBay came along, and, and I got a lot of exposure. I was watching it going on, people selling, and I was on there when, when they first started, like, within the first year that they started, and so um, it just kind of... Okay, and if you could just um, uh, say and spell your name for me, if you could. Okay, my name is Bob Kautzman, K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N. Okay, let's check. Took off, and at some point, you do kind of have to make the decision, you make this leap from your job into this, and um, my job was, it was boring. It was, it was nice, it was safe, but it was really boring. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think so many of us, um, like I say, would like to uh, convert, and I see that you have... In over 15,000 transactions on eBay, you have a 100% positive rating. So um, you're servicing uh, collectors and, you know, making a few few bucks at it. 15,000 yeah. is a lot of anything. Actually, I have to say um, that it, websites kind of, they change the way they do that on eBay, eBay but I'm, up, I'm almost to 25,000. Wow. Still. And, and actually, the website puts out about 1,000 packages a year. Man. <laughs> Good for you. That is so cool. Now, Amazing, yeah. in any kind of uh, printed media, labels, baseball cards, art, there are uh, there's counterfeits. Yeah. Do you run into counterfeit labels? There is um yeah. There's one person who does a lot of, and yeah, it's a long story, but she does a lot of um, um reproductions, and um. People tend to offer, like sometimes they'll offer me, this one woman had some really great stuff, and 
come out, I started looking at it, and what it was, it was an old calendar that had been taken apart, and she thought they were the labels. Oh. So you see that, and you see more of it nowadays. I don't see anybody really intentionally trying to sell reproductions as real labels, but, you know, sometimes they don't know, or, um, or in some respects, you know, that actually comes back to they really don't know. There hasn't been, like, all-out thing on reproducing them yet. Okay, so there's not, though, the amount of forgeries there are for labels like there are with comic books or... Um... No. No, not too much. Um, if you're a collector, though, and if you're going to spend a lot of money, you, you need to kind of get a little bit of an idea. You need to get a few look at them. Um, they're pretty easy to tell if they're, like, 1940 or earlier. Yeah, how can um, we tell? You can tell by, the, actually, the print, sometimes the, the smell of them, and um, they get, like, a musty smell to them, and also the back of them. There's always going to be a little bit of aging from the 1940s. And after the 40s, sometimes it depends on the paper and, and how much acid was in the paper and things, if they age or not. But when you get into, like, the 50s and 60s, they look like a color copy. Yeah, the uh, aging of... Um of the white paper, it'll turn a little brown because of oxidation. Mm -hmm. And um, you can even fake that, but I'm not going to describe how because I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to. Give I agree. No, I don't want to give anybody any bad ideas. And so far, I, sorry, go ahead. So far they haven't gotten that, that far, but it's not, it's not as big of a market. Um, like, I do really well, but there's only a handful of people that really make a living out of selling labels, where I think baseball cards and things, you probably have, a lot of people that do. Oh, there's, listen, I, there's people who thought they were going to make a lot of money on that, and including me, and the lesson I learned is, you know, you got to collect things that you really have a passion for. Yeah. And if your passion is for um, seafood can labels or cigar boxes or fruit, man, do that. And if you make money at it, so much the better. And and what I sense from chatting with you today is that you really had uh, an appreciation for the art and for the the industry around these, and that's what really got you hooked. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, no, that, that's very fair. I think as far as like the business part of it, I have a business degree too. I think I think if you're going to start a business like this, you have to um, you have to be very disciplined. You have to have like a goals. You have to have like um, a plan and things like that. And I see a lot of people. I mean, it's easy. There's so much bulk on some of this stuff. I mean, some of these labels, are, there's one of a kinds all the way up to 75,000 of them. And, and, you know, a lot of it is the labor involved. If you buy a label for $5, it's pretty much a labor of the person getting it together and sending it to you. Right. And so people see these sell for like a dollar each, and they're going, well, I can buy them for a dollar and sell them for five. But it's not that easy. Well, and, and if it were, everybody... Everybody be, yeah. Everybody would be doing it. Now, I know, Dwayne, you also, uh, in addition to your to your website, you have other places where you appear. Are there any uh, shows where you'll, you'll be appearing or any other kind of media interviews in your immediate future where we might see you? Um, I won't be on anything. Um, actually, I stay pretty close to home as far as, like, shows and, and things like that. I think I mentioned there's... Um, Supposed, I sent a bunch of labels to this um, Nate Burkus, and they're supposed to be on, supposed to air Monday. Oh, okay. So twenty-first. Okay, so um, since the show is taped, can this show is taped? Can you give us uh, an approximate date when you think uh, the Nate Burkus TV show will be on? Um, it looks like she told me Monday the twenty-first. I haven't seen that on this Saturday. I'll know for sure. Okay. But, but um, they're going to do a. Actually, what they're doing is they're going to do a. 
a show on. He does decorating. Right. So what he's going to do is he's going to do a show that's um, reasonably reasonably priced collectibles that may go up in value. And um, I know on this prior show, his, him and his mom were in some antique malls. So I think what they're doing is they're just looking at how you can decorate with antiques and things like that. So it might be kind of interesting. I think it might be a little bit of a boost. What? For oh, it would have to be. He's got, uh, you know, millions of, of viewers. He is pretty big. He's, he's pretty popular. And what did you send him, just out of curiosity? I don't want to spoil the segment, <laughs> but... So, spoiler well, yeah, alert, everybody. It's kind of funny when you get these people, like, they're always in a hurry. Whenever you get a, um, a set like that, they're always in a hurry, and they have to have them overnighted. And so what happens is I can tell by the way they buy their labels. They'll, they'll get a variety of different things, but they always get A, B, C. They don't get very far into the site. And the website has, like, 8,500 items on it. Mm-hmm. And so um, what happens is I know they just didn't take the time. So what I did is I picked out... Um, I picked out a couple comical ones. I picked out some with really great graphics. Um, a couple that have um, like real good fruit vignettes and things like that. And I threw in a bunch of extra stuff that more more represented what people like. Well, when you find out uh, the final, when when the airing is, let me know, and um, you know we'll include it in the write up about uh, about our interview today on on the collector show. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a go. But once it does it, then I'll um, I'll drop you an email. That would be great. Dwayne Rogers, who's the label man, and if you want to see all 8,500 of his uh, labels, everything from orange crate labels to seeds, cigar boxes, you name it, he's got it, and a bona fide expert, you can visit his website, thelabelman.com. And Dwayne Rogers, thank you so much for being with us today on The Collector Show. Thank you, Harold. It was a lot of fun. Stay tuned. More coming up on The Collector Show right after this. That song, by the way, Put the Lime in the Coconut, was originally released in 1971, and you can hear it at the end of Reservoir Dogs, and I think there's an episode of House where they they also use that, and I had taught myself how to edit the music this week and to insert different kinds of tracks into the program and I couldn't think of anything about fruit labels other than put the lime in the coconut so that's the story there and next week we're going to be talking about vacuum cleaners so uh, not really too sure about the music for that Um, but I guarantee it won't suck This is our weird news item of the week. We always like to close off with something strange, and I know there's a joke in here somewhere. Two injured in an accidental shooting at a Bloomington gun show. This is from, I think, Bloomington, Indiana. Two men were injured in an accidental shooting Saturday morning at the ECA Gun and Knife Show at Bloomington's Sale Barn. An attendee at the show was handling a Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle at about 11.15 a.m. As the patron was laying the rifle on a vendor's table, the gun accidentally discharged, said McLean County Sheriff Mike Emery. The round went through a post, through a person, and then into another person, Emery said. I'm not making this up. And I didn't make up the stuff about the, uh, about the uh, angler earlier. This is word for word. The sheriff described the post as wooden and six to eight inches thick. There's no description about the people. But anyway, 
how thick they were. The sheriff said one man suffered a chest wound. Details of the second person's injuries were not immediately available. One victim was taken to OSF St. Joseph Medical Center, while the other was transported to Advocate Broman Medical Center. There wasn't a report about where they took the post. According to Emory, one victim was out of surgery and listed as critical or in critical but stable condition as of 7.15 p.m., while the other was treated and released. Again, no word on the post. It was not immediately known whether the chest wound victim underwent the surgery and in which hospital the person was admitted. I swear to goodness, I'm not making this up. Emory said the discharged wound was a .223 caliber bullet and police would be investigating why a loaded gun was on hand at a gun show. It's firearm safety, Emory said. There should not be one weapon on the premises that has ammunition in it. Emory said additional witnesses were still being interviewed Saturday night, and the incident remains under investigation. Normal resident, I think that's the name of the town, not his description. Normal resident Wally Ward was in the sale barn when the gun discharged. I heard a large pop, and the next thing I knew, people were running for the doors, said Ward. The show opened at 9 a.m. Saturday at the sale barn at 20227 South Main Street and was back in operation shortly after the shooting. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's scheduled to run through today. Okay. An organizer of the show said ECA... The Egyptian Collectors Association had sponsored the local show for more than 10 years. Emery said this is the first time there had been an incident at the show. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry. I should be more professional. Okay, next week we're going to talk about vacuum cleaners and hopefully – more interesting news from the world of collecting. Now, you can also hear this and all of our shows here on Web Talk Radio, but you can also get them from iTunes. And you can even subscribe to the show if you go to iTunes and listen to them there. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next week and we'll learn about vacuum cleaners. I'm Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio. Say, doctor, is there nothing I could take? I say, doctor, to relieve this belly ache. I say, doctor, is there nothing I could take? I say, doctor, to relieve this belly ache. I say, now let me get this straight. Put the lime in the coconut, you drink a bowl up. Put the lime in the coconut, you drink a bowl up. Put the lime in the coconut, you drink a bowl up. Put the lime in the coconut, you call the Welcome up, say doctor. Is there nothing I could take? I say doctor. To relieve this belly ache, I say doctor. doctor. Is there nothing I could take? I say doctor. doctor. To relieve this belly ache. Put the lime in the coconut. You drink them both together. Put the lime in the coconut and you feel better. Put the lime in the coconut. Drink a bowl up. Put the lime in the coconut. You call me in the morning.